Live from the William Hill Sportsbook at Silver 7's Hotel and Casino, it's Cofield and Company. Three o'clock hour. You heard it. Silver 7, 77 cent beers tonight. Vegas Golden Knights on the TVs. At six o'clock, it's a road spot against the Avalanche. Adam Candy's here. It's Cofield. Angel helping out as well. Let's get to it. It's time for the three. Presented by Nova Home Loans. Call now at 877-700-NOVA. Candy, who do you think is the best Cinderella left in the Sweet 16? Like, actually has a chance to do some damage, win a game, maybe two, and go to the Final Four. I'm sorry. I have to go full Adam Hill on you here. I'm going to need a definition of Cinderella. Like, Any how low of a seed? Double digit. And I would also Ooh. throw in I would also throw in Creighton because Creighton is a mid-major. Really? Okay. All right. Um, I don't think Creighton's going anywhere because of where they are. Right. I think Arkansas is going to put the Oral Roberts story to an end here. So I guess I'm going to have to go with Oregon State almost by default, huh? Uh-huh. Like, yeah, I look, I love the way UCLA is playing defense right now. I think Mick Cronin has them defensively at the best point that they've been at all year long. Uh, it's just that Alabama is the number two defensive efficiency team by Ken Palm in the nation. They're really good at both ends of the floor. Um, I think Syracuse has a chance. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I've been shocked by how well they've played thus far, and Houston is not a team that shoots the ball well, and here we go again, right? Here we go again, Cofield, with this Syracuse team coming up in March and shocking the hell out of somebody with a zone that we've seen Jim Beheim play for decades now. Did uh, The Athletic or Sam, whoever says last name, they do a, a pretty big piece on Syracuse and the intricacies go, of the right? zone? I mean, I, I don't know if you had a chance to, to check it out, but I'll tell you what. Uh, Sam Vesney did a piece that talked about not only the challenges of preparing for the Syracuse defense, but something sneaky about them, and it's almost the complete opposite thing for their offense. So everybody knows the 2-3 zone that Jim Beheim has played forever, and coaches in Sam's article talked about preparing for it on one day's notice because it's a different 2-3 zone than what you're used to is something that is very difficult in the NCAA tournament, much different than for ACC coaches who are used to seeing it year in and year out or Big East coaches before that. But on the offensive side, they said it's basically like anything goes. Like there really is no Syracuse offense. Uh, it is we're going to run some plays for Buddy Beheim, but basically we're just going to kind of see how you defend us, find out where the matchup we like is, and go after that. And Jim Beheim on the other side was lauded by a lot of coaches for saying, and this is something that I think we've talked to Joe Esposito, and I think we talked to John Crispin about this as well, he doesn't overload them with information. He doesn't give them like the detail down to the right-hand dribble, left-hand dribble scouting reports. He basically tells them the general principles of what he wants them to do, and that's it. And that's what Syracuse focuses on. So, look, the reason I don't believe that Syracuse is necessarily that much of a lock, and I've heard people pick them pretty regularly here against Houston, is that it's not Kelvin Sampson's first rodeo. Just the same way it wasn't Bob Huggins' first rodeo. But Houston is a team that is much more talented defensively than West Virginia was. Yeah, I also think from an offensive standpoint, with more time to prepare, uh, you're better off, obviously. The, much of the story is built around uh, having only one day to prepare. And uh, I saw the, the mention that the if you're going to run your regular zone offense, 2-3 zone offense against them, uh, it's not going to work because it's really more like a 4-1. It's like a box. 
and then a rim protector, you know, who's going to come over. But And it's also the other thing that, you know, you hear about all the time with the zone is use that free throw line, use that high post to get the ball in there and then start moving the ball around. Well, they have such big, long guys out front that it's not always easy to make the entry pass. So, you know, it's one of those disappearing views that all of a sudden you're like, wait, I thought it was open. It's not. Uh, but I do like Houston and the fact that they've had a week to prepare, and I also think they've got two six seven dudes, six six whatever, um, in uh, Giroux and Grimes who can not only catch the ball at the high post and do some damage, but also get to the high post if they need to dribble into it. So I think Houston will handle them. I don't think it's going to be a blowout, though. No, and, I mean, Kelvin Sampson said this week that is going to play, but he thinks he'll be 75% at best. And we saw Giroux really gutting it out. Uh, against your Scarlet Knights, like he he was running up and down the court with one and a half legs. So, Houston's not gonna be at full strength by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I just feel like for Syracuse, Buddy Bayheim is on such an unbelievable run right now, and three point shooting does not last like that over the length of time. It always comes back to evening out one way or the other. So. I think if Houston decides to do one thing and one thing only, they're going to take Buddy Bayheim away and say, okay, how else can you beat us? Yeah, that game is uh, six. Houston is six here at the William Hill Sportsbook inside of Silver 7. So I think the uh, to turn to football here in free agency, and we've been talking about, a lot about the Raiders and what they've done so far. I think in the market everyone's like, all right, kind of wait and see. It looks like they filled some needs, some interesting signings. Kenyon Drake's a little bit weird. Let's see how the offensive line turns out. Will they get a free safety? But no one's freaking out. I keep seeing people outside the market, uh, media folks, who are like, what is going on there? What is going on with the Raiders? And there was another piece today. I know you found this one where it was really harsh about maybe the Raiders fans' lack of aggression, settling. And this is something I've talked about before. Like, I don't feel the vibe from the Raiders that it's go time. And after three years, in a market that has the Golden Knights, Golden Knights go time was like from day one and then after year one and after year two. Like they're always looking to improve. The Raiders vibe is not the same. So when you think of the Raiders, Steve, you think of Al Davis, right? You think of just win, baby. And that's the problem. We're still talking about an owner who as beloved as he is, as as big of a figure in NFL history as he is, has been gone a long time and the franchise hasn't won a lot since he's been gone. And that's what the national writers are looking at here. So Lindsay Jones had a mailbag piece in The Athletic, and someone wrote into her and said, John Gruden is on a lifetime scholarship with the Raiders, and it appears they're building for 2022 when the cap goes up. How many more seasons will Mark Davis tolerate? And she responds and says, lifetime scholarship is a brilliant phrase, and I think it answers your question about Davis and his patience. He coveted Gruden for years before being able to hire him has given him tremendous power. So even if the Raiders have faltered, Gruden remains immensely popular. And here's the part you have to pay attention to. And if my Twitter mentions were any indication last week after openly questioning the Raiders' plans, the in Gruden we trust mantra is alive and well. Steve, you don't feel the urgency, and I'm curious... Where don't you feel the urgency? Do you feel it from the Raiders organization? Do you feel it from the fans? Do you feel it from anywhere? Because I don't feel any urgency at all in the way that they've handled this offseason. And the fact that there are, let's just say, there are some media members out there who have been friendlier and more receptive to putting the team's message out there than others, that it's helped in the local media market keep the pressure off them. It has. It has. And I think there there are some fans who you know, feel like this is an under-the-gun situation, but uh, really the heat has not been turned up on the Raiders not at all it hasn't been and it should be it should be 
because if we're going to go with this lifetime scholarship idea on Gruden, and the only one who can check him is Mark Davis, and Mark Davis has the biggest man crush on John Gruden that you will ever see between two bros, then when is this going to end for Raiders fans? And I guess the problem on the other side is they don't seem to care. They just don't seem to care. They don't seem to care that their team sucks. They don't seem to care that their team has been to the playoff once in the last 20 years. They don't seem to care that it's 8-8 eight and eight as a celebration. They shouldn't even be 8-8. Eight and eight. They shouldn't be coming off 8-8. Eight and eight. The Broncos screwed that game up at the end every way they could have. They should be coming off another losing season here. They should be coming off 7-9. and nine. And if you're out there saying to yourself right now, oh, here we go again. Everybody hates the Raiders. Here's the media being negative. Trust me, as a former beat writer, as a former team broadcaster, as a radio guy, I don't like covering losing teams. I hate covering losing teams. Losing teams are in a bad mood. Losing teams have angry fans in most places. But here, it just seems like it's all part of the process. It's all part of the, oh, he'll get it turned around. What in John Gruden's history tells you he'll get it turned around? What in John Gruden as a personnel guy's history tells you he's going to fix this? He won with somebody else's players in Tampa Bay, and he has destroyed this roster, and they're no farther along than they were when Jack Del Rio was here. So what is it that gives you that confidence, or do you just not care? And if you don't care, why did we build a billion-dollar stadium for you to come here? Nova Home Loans brings you the three. It's a refi raid at Nova Home Loans. With interest rates at all-time lows, now's the time to talk to your local Nova loan officer. 877-700-NOVA. Yeah, uh-huh, you know what it is. Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow. Yeah, uh-huh, you know what it is. Black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow, black and yellow. It's time for Cofield and Company's Path to the Draft. Brought to you by Battleboard Injury Lawyers. Need legal advice? Call 570-9000. Steelers are up as we count down from 32 to 1 for prior covers. Pittsburgh for ESPN.com and joins uh, Adam Candy and Steve Cofield here in Vegas. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, like I was saying on the when I was on hold, it's a lot of draft talk around here because free agency has been pretty, pretty quiet in Pittsburgh. Yes, 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 yes. Well, let's go back to the uh, the biggest drama of the offseason, and that started with uh, Big Ben. How did it all get worked out? And I, I don't know, I still have the strange feeling that maybe they should have ripped off the scab and uh, and moved on from Big Ben, but I guess you know that was going to be a lot of trouble in terms of the salary cap. Right, exactly. I mean, he was set to have the highest salary cap in the league this year, the Steelers. Uh, worked with him to reduce it. His cap hit is now below $30 million, uh, which is, I mean, it's a, it's a significant uh, amount less after it was around $41.5 million. But still, um, it's a significant amount of money. I think it, it total came in around $26.9 million is his cap hit. So they did free up some space to sign guys around him, but... I was on a fan call with Art Rooney the second earlier today, and he said the goal the whole time this offseason was to have Ben come back. They just had to be able to pay him and some guys around him. And, yes, they were able to do that, doing things like bringing back Julius and the Schuster for one more season. But still, I mean, there's guys like Bud Dupree, Mike Hilton, Tyson Alulu, those guys that maybe you would have had a better chance of signing if they you know, could have 
uh, cut then. You still would have counted about $22 million against the cap in, in dead money, but still, it's, you know, a couple extra dollars could go a long way, especially in a year like this. So Ben Roethlisberger as a player, not as a contract, we look at last year and it seemed from the outside like the offense went to much shorter passing with Ben Roethlisberger in, you know, in comparison to what we've seen in the past with Ben firing the ball down the field. Was that by design based on who Ben Roethlisberger is now coming off the elbow reconstruction or is that something that we think might change here going forward for the Steelers? You know, I, I get the sense that it was by design in the sense that it was what Randy Feekner was calling. Those were the plays that he was putting in from the sideline. And you could see it stretches where Ben Roethlisberger took over the offense and he was pushing the ball down the field, running uh, more vertical routes or having his receivers run more vertical routes. And toward the end of the season, his average air yards per attempt actually went up by about two yards. It was right around six yards for most of the season. And it went up to over eight for the last, I think, three or four games. And to me, that says this is a guy who is still capable of pushing the ball down the field. And now he's going to have an offensive coordinator in Matt Canada, who, when he was in the when he was in the college game, he liked running those vertical routes. Yes, there's still you know jet sweeps, um, some short passes underneath. But I think that we're going to see an emphasis put on stretching the ball down the field. But I mean, if, if the 17 game schedule gets passed as it's expected to. I don't think that bodes well for Ben and his arm because, yes, he was able to get through last season. He said all year that the arm was fine, but you could see there was some wear and tear as the season went on just on the rest of his body. And now this 39-year-old quarterback is going to have another week of playing, and, and that's where you look at it and say, you know, gee, it would have been nice to save some money if we had cut him. But also a younger quarterback may be able to weather a longer season better than Ben Roethlisberger at 39 years old will be able to do. So, Brooke, as we look at the Steelers going into the draft then, um, you know, we obviously got a look two years ago at the Mason-Rudolph-Duck Hodges combo, which wasn't really uh, the future of the Steelers by all indications. So is this a draft where the Steelers will look maybe not in the first round, but at some point later to look to the quarterback position again and see if they can you know, try to mine some gold the way they're so successful at doing, you know, wide receiver in some other spots? Yeah, you know, I think so. I think this is the draft that you have to take another quarterback because you need to kick the tires on as many of these guys as you can to come up with a better succession plan for when Ben Roethlisberger retires. And that's, I mean, all signs point to that happening after the 21 season. Mason Rudolph was a free agent after this season. Um, they have Dwayne Haskins on a one-year deal. To me, he's kind of like a drafted quarterback in that you don't quite know what you have. Um, in the case with him, we know that he's had some trouble in Washington. The work ethic wasn't there. He was not a good fit, uh, and he ends up being released. I think that they're still going to see if there's anything there, if there's any potential there. Um, but I think that you know you take a guy maybe third, fourth round if you can get a guy like Jamie Newman or Kyle Trask. Get a quarterback who, if they are around on the second or third day of the draft, sure, why not? Take a flyer, draft a guy, see if he works out. Worst-case scenario, you have a backup going into the 22 season, and hopefully you're able to either sign a free agent when your salary cap goes back up, or if the season goes terribly, you get a high draft pick and maybe end up drafting a guy like Sam Howell. So 
I think that, that there's little risk in trying to draft a quarterback this year if you're the Steelers. Brooke Pryor from ESPN joining us here on Cofield and Company. Last year by Pro Football Focus Grades, the Pittsburgh Steelers graded out number two on defense, and that seemed to be the consistent element for the Steelers through the bulk of the season. But I think everyone looks at 11-0 and and then everything after as sort of two different timelines there for the Steelers. Did they learn anything about the team last year in terms of what went wrong after 11-0 and that you think they will apply to the draft since they have been so quiet in free agency? You know, I, I don't know that it's, uh, anything they've learned can be applied in the draft. I mean, the biggest thing is that they need depth at some really crucial positions and positions that, in my opinion, got weaker in free agency because they couldn't re-sign Bud Dupree. And he was a huge factor in them going 11-0. and He tears his ACL. They really fall apart without him, and he walks because they don't have the money. Mike Hilton, another guy who was really crucial in them getting to 11-0, and he gets hurt and misses some time. And those injuries were happening at different times, but their impact was still felt. Um, I think that they know that they need to now beef up the defensive side of the ball. It's, it's interesting to me because when we talked with Art Rooney II back in January, he said, you know, our, our goal is to build a championship team, you know, a, a win-now team. But then some of these moves it, in free agency suggest that we may be heading toward an identity crisis where, you have one side of the ball that, you know, is ready to win now with Ben, with Juju, and now a defense that was really your strength um, that's been weakened in free agency through losing some those guys I mentioned earlier, that they have a lot of holes they're gonna have to fit they're gonna have to fill otherwise they could start this season the way they ended last season and that's not what anybody in this town wants. No, obviously not, and uh, you know you didn't even mention. Uh, but of course, we all know about you know, the Devin Bush injury as well as they got weaker at the linebacker spot as well. Like they they really were uh, hit hard by those injuries. So I, I guess I look at it now with that organization and say that we went through something with the Raiders that you could be on the verge of going through with the Steelers with T.J. Watt in the same way it went through with Khalil Mack here where there comes a time where the guy has to get paid. And John Gruden made his decision, and the Raiders have been searching for pass rush ever since that time. Uh, I believe on your call uh, today with Art Rooney, he discussed that situation about T.J. Watt? He did, yeah. A fan was so excited. He he does these calls every so often where they take fan questions and this fan was so excited, she just said, are, are we going to re-sign T.J. Watt? And Art kind of laughed, and he said, well, you know, we do, he is under contract for one more year, but, you know, this lifelong Steelers fan knows, as, as any Steelers fan or someone following the organization knows, this is when they like to give those big extensions to guys, you know, right before their last, uh, the last season on their contract. And I think that we're in line to see T.J. Watt get paid a pretty significant amount later this summer, because as Art Rooney said, he is in our plans for the future. This is a guy that they want to build a defense around, and I just don't think that there's any way they let him walk after you let Bud Dupree go. you got to hold on to T.J. Watt. If you have a Watt in your organization, you don't want to let them go. I mean, but Texans clearly messed that one up, said goodbye to J.J., and now he's in Arizona, but I I think that they're going to lock T.J. down for quite a while, and he's going to be and, and he is and will continue to be a, a cornerstone, just foundational piece for this defense. Brooke, great spot. We appreciate a couple minutes. Thank you so much. 
Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Check out Brooke Stuff at ESPN.com. She's an excellent writer and really good personality. Uh, up on Twitter at B.E. Pryor, and she covers the Steelers. Uh, later in the show, we'll double up today, cover another team, path to the draft. Seahawks don't have their pick. The Jets have it, but we'll find out from Chuck Powell what's going on with the Seahawks. But on the way back, we stick with the theme of the draft. Austin Gale, Pro Football Focus, will join us, and we will concentrate on, uh, you know what we'll do? We'll do the tight ends, even though it's not a massive need for the uh, Raiders. There's some good tight ends in this draft, and we just talked about the Steelers needing a tight end, so tight ends on the way. Anytime the Golden Knights are on TV, watch the game at the William Hill Sportsbook inside Silver 7s and grab your 77-cent Bud Light bottles. Now, back to the William Hill Sportsbook inside Silver 7s with Cofield and Company. We're going to check in with the guys at Pro Football Focus here in just a couple minutes. Austin Gale is going to join us on the latest with the NFL Draft and We've been doing position by position, so so far we've covered uh, wide receiver, offensive line, safety, and uh, today we'll talk about tight end. But we got a couple updates from the basketball world. If you didn't hear it, Lon Kruger, you know Kevin Kruger was just hired to lead the UNLV Running Rebels program. Lon Kruger has retired. He's going to be leaving Oklahoma. He's retiring. He'll be back here in Vegas. Uh, he and his wife Barb uh, just bought something at the beginning of the year back in Vegas, so he'll be here. So that's very interesting to unpack and we're seeing more and more of the transfer portal i feel like there's like 50 new names every day uh i think the portal is now filled with 800 players yesterday donovan yap isaac Lindsay, eduardo Docadia, uh martinez from unlv are in the transfer portal and then caleb grill we find out in the last half hour he's in as well I think that one's a loss. I don't think it's a devastating loss. Uh, what was your impression of Caleb Grill? And do you agree with Tyler Bischoff, who's on the press box, who said uh, Grill is as important as anyone on the roster outside of Bryce? I mean, he listed Caleb Grill as the third most important player to try to retain with Nick Blake in front of him and both David Jenkins and Bryce Hamilton after him. So, <laughs> yeah, that's a big opinion on yeah. uh, on. Caleb Grill, Look, he had his moments early in the year. I, my question for the entire roster is, who's the guy who's going to go create offense by themselves? And it didn't appear to be Caleb Grill. He appeared to be a guy where when you ran him off a stagger and you could open him up for a shot, yeah, great. Then he can get his, uh, his open looks at three, and he's as good as anybody when he gets the look. But shot under 40% from three-point three range this year, averaged nine points a game, and the consistency was never really there for him. That said, if you're going to be able to keep this roster together in some way, shape, or form, there's a role for the guy. But much the same way we talked about David Jenkins yesterday, Cofield, I just don't think the role is what we originally envisioned. No, no, not at all. The you know the fact that we got a closer look, he was a much different player than I expected. So some positives, some stuff I didn't know he could do, but others I thought he could do that right now he can't. But that said, he's got plenty of time. In terms of eligibility, so he's a useful piece to someone if they didn't, you know, if uh, maybe they've already parted ways. Both sides have said, hey, that's enough. Uh, I don't know if UNLV will make any effort to, uh, you know, pull him out of the portal. But, uh, yeah, he's got plenty of upside. You're an athlete like that. I mean, he's, he's incredible. If you watch him as a straight-line athlete, jumping ability, speed, um, nuts. Uh, you know, the guy can throw down dunks. He's obviously a good three-point shooter. Hopefully he can get more proficient at that. Because he's un unreal when you watch him shooting, but sometimes in game action he gets a little bit rushed. But, yeah. Tons of upside. Tons of upside. All right, well, let's get to 
uh, more preview of the NFL draft. Uh, we are going to be down here at Silver Sevens on that Thursday, so we'll tell you what we've got planned there in terms of uh, a party and events. It'll be a bit muted because we're still not going to be out of the uh, the restrictions for COVID, but uh, it'll be a good time down here at Silver Sevens for the draft in about five Thursdays. So let's get into the uh, the NFL draft and, and some of the latest goings on. But first, let's concentrate on the tight end position. Austin Gale is with us. Hey, Austin. Doing well, Matt. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. All right. We wanted to talk about tight ends, and it's not like the Raiders. We've been kind of basing it on Raiders' needs and Raiders' moves recently. Uh, in your mind, the Raiders are pretty set at tight end for a while, correct? Yeah, I would say so. Even though there are some teams, obviously like the New England Patriots, that want to run more 12 or 13 personnel looks with two tight end sets. I don't think there is a tight end after Kyle Pitts where it makes sense or worth investing at the position. I also think that you know the team overall has hyped up this kid Foster Morrow or Foster yep. Moreau of LSU. Like, why aren't we seeing this guy? Let's go see Foster before we start investing in the tight end position again. Oh, yeah, if they – if the Raiders drafted a tight end or signed a tight end and the plan was to put him in front of Foster, uh, Foster Moreau, oh, my God, you would not believe how the fans would react here. They were so pissed off at times last year that Jason Witten was seemingly getting Moreau's uh, reps. They were going nuts. I mean, the fact that Jason Witten was stealing reps from Foster Moreau is absolute sir. Like, this guy's coaching high school football now. Like, it, he came from the booth to somehow landing a decent deal with the Las Vegas Raiders, so now coaching high school football. I Something doesn't add up there. It doesn't make a ton of sense, in my opinion, that they even offered him that contract to limit, again, the development of a young player that you invested a draft pick in. So my philosophy forever when I talk NFL draft, there are certain positions I'm interested in drafting in the first round. There's others I'm not. Tight end is one of them that I'm not. Has that theory been debunked over the last couple of years in terms of high-level tight end draft picks? Is it worth spending a first-round pick on a tight end or – do you wait, and there's always value on guys in the third and fourth round? I think in Kyle Pitts' case, he's obviously the Florida tight end that's typed up as a top five, top ten player in this class. It's different because of – and it's a lot different conversation than the running back conversation. The reason you don't draft a running back in the first round, or one of the reasons you don't draft a running back in the first round, is that there are a lot of good ones, a lot of good tight ends, or not, a good running backs that can be productive in your offense. The reason you don't draft a tight end in the first round is not that similar to running back. It's because – it's a low-paid position. It's a market value, low-paid position. It's one of the lowest-paid positions in the NFL. And when the NFL is giving you a cost-controlled rookie contract, regardless of the position you take at 5 or 10 or 15 in the first round, taking a low-value position like tight end or box safety or running back, not trying to hurt Raiders fans here, but that is not what we are supposed to do. However, the positional scarcity, unlike the running back position, at tight end makes things interesting. There are only really three legit game-changing tight end. And that's Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, and Las Vegas Raiders tight end Darren Waller. After that, it's a mishmash of average tight ends that don't necessarily force defenses to get aggressive at defending you. Evan Ingram may be in the conversation, Mark Andrews, Zach Ertz in his heyday, but still, you're not talking about game-changing tight ends after the big three. Kyle Pitts is one of those guys. He can be a big three tight end in the NFL. He could be easily the fourth-best tight end in the NFL as a rookie. After him, though, there isn't a single tight end in this class I take before the second or third round. Austin, we look at the tight end position differently now, too, right? Because we don't look at them in line as much as we did in the past, especially you know when we talk about Kyle Pitts. We were just talking about Kyle Pitts athlete as opposed to Kyle Pitts tight end versus the wide receivers that we know are a deep class in the draft. That would be a different story, right? Because, I mean, Kyle Pitts is the kind of guy where it seems like you could line him up just about anywhere that you need to. 
And, and it, it, that, that falls true with the best tight ends in the NFL. Darren Waller plays over 100 snaps at outside receiver. George Kittle does the same. You know, Travis Kelsey arguably plays more spots and more snaps in the slot than he does at inline tight end. The best tight end in the best tight ends in the NFL don't play tight end. They play everything, and that's what Kyle Pitts can do. You view the position differently when you have different players at the position, but a bulk majority of the NFL still views the tight end position where it needs to be a 235, 240-plus pound player that can block and threaten the defense, force them into base personnel, force them to have four defensive linemen and three linebackers or vice versa, or you're looking for this game-changing athlete that can play in the slot and these things where you're often going to see the Chiefs still see a lot of nickel and dime looks even when Travis Kelsey is in the lineup or Darren Waller is, Darren Waller is in the lineup. The tight end originally, or at least five, ten years ago, was meant to keep teams in base personnel but still be able to throw to a 240-plus pound guy. Now it's a lot different depending on the player you have at the position. So how does it change how you evaluate the position then? Like, do you take the position and do you devalue blocking more than you would have in the past? And do you value up on the receiving skills? I, so, I, so I think I used to think that. I used to think, okay, I only want tight ends that can be a Darren Waller. I only want tight ends that can be a Travis Kelsey. But that, that's not the case. I only draft tight ends in the first round if they have the, the talent of a Darren Waller Travis Kelsey or George Kittle. I still value those other tight ends that aren't those caliber of athletes or aren't, can't do what those guys do, but I don't value them in the first round. You know, TJ Hawkinson type should have never gone at pick number eight to the Detroit Lions. I don't have to tell them about how to evaluate the tight end position with Eric Ebron and Brandon Pettigrew also on that resume. <laughs> I do think that you don't evaluate the tight end position differently. You just value the different players at those positions better. Like you see a George Kittle type or a Travis Kelsey type and you value him early in the first round, but you don't value the second-tier tight ends, guys like T.J. Hawkinson, guys like Jesse James, Heath Miller, you know these other guys that don't offer game-changing ability at the position, you go and fill those needs on day two with like a Hunter Long of Boston College, Pat Fryermuth of Penn State, Brevin Jordan of Miami. You go get those guys on day two, fill that position on day two or day three, rather than chase that position in, the round, in round one. Go to pff.com, sign up for the subscription on uh, Pro Football Focus, uh, it is one of the best spots, if not the best spot uh, on all the Internet to get draft prep, and you can hear how good Austin Gale is on this stuff. Let's uh, close out on an overall draft theme here. You know, maybe I'm just grumpy. I'm always grumpy. Um, but I, I got to tell you, the, the constant reporting of 40 times from pro days, what does it mean anymore? Like I saw yesterday, Micah Parsons, tremendous athlete. I guess, I guess it's news if he runs a 4-9 um, do you think personnel people are still freaking rotting up, getting all fired up over these crazy high or crazy good 40 times? I don't think so. Not as much as maybe Twitter might suggest. I mean, you throw a 40 time out with a couple of fire emojis and get pretty people excited, but I don't think the NFL teams are that excited. I think what they look at is what they are checking is they're really just trying to check boxes. You know, Micah Parsons was supposed to run in the low 4-4s, high 4-3s. Jason Owe was supposed to run in the low 4-4s, high 4-3s. Same with Rondell Moore, Elijah Moore of Ole Miss. If you are seeing a surprisingly low number or good number at a pro day, you did something wrong. You didn't see it on the film, and you made a mistake. Where it comes up for NFL teams more so is if you see a surprisingly bad number. That's where you're going to go back to the film and say, okay, this doesn't make a ton of sense. He's not an elite athlete. Maybe he did have good film. Maybe he was super productive. But we are not seeing that tier of athlete that you kind of need to be in the NFL to have long-term success. Are there outliers? Absolutely. Not every single good player in the NFL is an elite-tier athlete. But the ones, a bulk majority of them 
are absolutely top 75th or top, top 80 percentile athletes. So I do think that the outliers are what you're looking for on pro days. You know, Paris Ford of Pittsburgh is a safety that ran a 4-7 or 4-8. That's not good. You're not playing safety in the NFL. I don't care how, tape your, how good your tape was. You run that you know, 40 at your pro day, it's going to be very difficult to consider drafting you in the draft because you're just not, you don't see guys do that. You know, similar to Rondell Moore weighing at five or coming in at five foot seven. There's only been one receiver in the history of the NFL that's been five foot seven and had a thousand yard season. It was Andrew Hawkins. Like you don't, you're just picking on these outliers a bit. So I do think that you're looking for outliers, avoiding them in some cases, at least avoiding them in the first round. That's the biggest information you can really take from these pro days. Austin, great job, man. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Of course, thank you. Go check it out, pff.com. Austin Gallo is really good on the NFL draft. We got the football frenzy at 4 o'clock. We're going to do another spot on the NFL draft, 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 draft on the Seahawks with Chuck Powell from KJR. Loaded show the rest of the way, and we do have to get reaction, more reaction from us and some of the experts like Curtis Terry on the retirement of Lon Kruger. If you didn't hear, Lon is done at Oklahoma. Join the conversation on Twitter at Cofield & Co. It's time to Trust Us. Presented by Dustin DeHart at Nova Home Loans. Call him today at 577-2600. Yes, you should trust us. Well, trust Dustin DeHart. He's here with us from Nova Home Loans. 577-2600 is Dustin's number. All right, Dustin, let's get into it. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, People complaining about... Uh, whatever's going on in the United States and California, taxes, this and that, and they make big threats, right? They're, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. I'm getting out of California. And I just found the latest case with Gene Simmons, a uh, member of KISS. He was complaining on and off for a while about California and the taxes, and it just came down that he bought like a $5.5 million home in Malibu. I've, I've never been a big Gene Simmons fan or a KISS fan. But, what? Uh, you know, you get... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, you love him or hate him. The dude's a great businessman. You oh know, I God, remember... Yeah. Remember his reality show? I remember that house. I mean, it was a nice house, but it was really gaudy. But this house is, Holy is unbelievable. Crap. Is tell, it not? Like, tell people why it's unbelievable. I mean, it's literally on a cliff overlooking Malibu. Just, I mean, everything modern, brand new. I mean, can't get more over the top than this. So, you know, where are you, you know, if you have his money, where are you going to get a house like that with that view? Well, not too many places, United States. So yep. I, I get it. But, you know, it was funny. A lot of people are. Leaving California, go to Texas, and uh, yeah, where you, where where, where 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 are you getting this in Texas? It's yeah. in this is in Malibu. There's uh, like 180 degree view of uh, the ocean, oh, then the right. mountains. Um, I mean, the views in this house are unreal. So enjoy the flatlands of Texas and the the lower wow. taxes. But apparently, Gene Simmons is like, I can't leave here. I love it. And it seems like a bargain, right? Five point five million for that. I know. I mean, it does, right? I'm like, that's it, man. It's craziness. Now, here, here's the great thing: we have so many uh, Los Angelinos and you know Southern Californians who have moved here, who have transplanted to Vegas, and a big reason is the houses are cheaper here. On the flip side, sure. uh, there was a character on the Office uh, named Toby Flenderson. It's a great character. Well, he's got a house that's in L.A. Uh, it's actually in Sherman Oaks. And I saw the picture yeah. of the house, and it's listed for like a million one. I, lo- I saw the sure. picture of the house, and I'm like, that house is like 1,600 square feet. I'm like, what is going yeah. on here? <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Yeah, so that would go for about eh, probably right under 300000 yeah. a year. You yeah. know, you know what neighborhood you're in. Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's the dichotomy of L.A. to Las Vegas. 
Uh, it's crazy. I just talked to a guy two days ago who's buying a, trying to buy a second home. He, we couldn't make the income work for him because his primary re- he's only you know fixed income twelve thousand a month, which is pretty decent you know for retired firemen. But he bought a house three years ago in L.A. and it's on an FHA loan, it was eight hundred thousand. His payment's oh five grand a month. I'm like, dude, you gotta that in your car payment. You that's that's all you can afford. Like you can't afford another house here. It's crazy. Call Dustin to Hart five seven seven twenty six hundred is the number. It's Nova Home <laughs> Loans. Let's go back to like high high level houses. We always talk a little real estate with Dustin yeah. Hart, some football as well. What's your thought on Vegas in general and the uh, the commercial you know business? real estate that uh, building is is back and you know we've got virgin opening up we've got uh resorts world opening up hopefully the the uh, drew or whatever they name it is going to start rolling out there we got the convention center build out that's finishing up that mm-hmm. that is a good sign for the economy and it's also it's good for you it's good for home buyers that means a lot more people are getting back to work yeah it feels like we're roaring back um you know, conventions kind of drive this town. I, I think concrete something was the first one to step in. So we, we need somebody to get in. And I, I feel like there's going to be a lot more after that. Yeah, the resorts world's coming. Uh, yeah, Area 51, I've heard great things about that. You know, and it, look, you, you can't drive in this town without two minutes and you look and there's another apartment complex being built, you know. So, so the demand's here. Uh, we just, we, you know, we have a housing shortage, like I've said time and time again. So, um, you know, we need to get people back to work, uh, get the town roaring again, which looks like it's on track. Uh, you know, we've we've seen this before. We come, we uh, shoot up like a rocket. So it, I, I, I'm not too worried about our economy. It's going to come back. You know, but the the other aspect of that commercial real estate is, you know, where I'm sitting right now. You know, where office space, where that that's taking a beating. You know, they. A lot of uh, employers are figuring out that they don't need so much office space, that uh, employees work fine at home. So um, that that is a little concern, but uh, we'll see what happens with that. Not in my wheelhouse, but I, I have heard that uh, there's a lot of retail places like uh, where I'm sitting at that are struggling right now because of uh, you know people not paying rent or moving out. Dustin DeHart is with us here on this Thursday. Rates are going up. Uh, what are we looking at this week? And is it, is it beginning to be kind of freak out time? If you want a mortgage tune up, should you be getting it done right now? Yeah, you should. Uh, look, when I say, you know, you say rates are going up, they, they did. They, you know, the, the days of uh, 2% rates have uh, passed us. They, they could come back. Uh, I don't know. You know, this was probably the best day for interest rates we've seen in five or six weeks, uh, meaning. They never went down or went up all week. Um, you know, tomorrow we'll see what happens. There was a bond auction today that wasn't great, so I'm a little concerned about tomorrow. But you know, there's, we're we're trading these technical levels and we're trying to hold it. And if we do, and we get some good news on inflation and stuff like that, they they could you know they will come back down. And I I do think at the end of the year we see them push back down again um, because inflation will tame out a little bit. Um, it's a little bit blown out of proportion right now. But if you take last year out of the, out of the equation, Steve, I mean, right now rates are the lowest they've ever been in the history of the United States. So even if your rate's a little higher than I would have quoted a month or two ago, it's still a great time to call me, see what I can do for you. Especially you need to pay off some debts, make some home improvements. Let's get that rate locked in because they're very volatile and who knows what's going to happen. Dustin Hart's with us. Uh, let's close on this one. When you're making a decision to buy HOA or no HOA, I just saw a couple stories in the RJ of interest. Uh, something about a Senate Bill 144. A headline says it'll hurt Las Vegas HOAs. 
Um, I guess uh, HOAs would have to go through a, a different process to foreclose on homes. Uh, what do you know about this? This is basically making them go through the judicial foreclosure process, which is uh, more time consuming and more costly for them. You know, whether you like HOAs or not, they do have a budget, right? So um, the more costs that they have to incur makes the, them, you know, have less budget to make the repairs and make the neighborhood nice, more or less. You know what right. I mean? And, you know, they do have to go. Look, I know it sounds callous that an HOA can foreclose on somebody. Um, you know, this was a huge problem 10 years ago. And, you know, there was this big thing of people buying HOA liens and trying to extinguish the first mortgage. But they can jump ahead of a first mortgage if, uh, you know, if the HOA dues have been delinquent for a certain amount of time and they can't foreclose on the property. Wow. So so take that in perspective. I mean, don't let your HOA go uh, unpaid because they can come calling with a uh, notice of default on you. You know, and again, I know it sounds weird. But at some point, they got to collect their money because if they don't, then they're going to be under budget and it affects the whole neighborhood. Yeah, I thought you know? this. So story, if you don't like that, yeah. don't go to an HOA neighborhood. Exactly. Right? Don't go to an HOA neighborhood. I'm not in one. And it's stuff like this that drives me nuts. A uh, story in the RJ about uh, a big fight over where the garbage cans can be stored. You know, we've got all these these uh, big garbage cans with the lids on them now and the wheels and everything. And there's a fight in one community over can you put it on the side of the house or do you have to put it, you know, in the backyard or on the side of the house behind some sort of fence. These are the ones that drive me nuts. And, and I am a pro HOA guy. My house in Green Valley has a couple HOAs, you know, the, the Green Valley Ranch and then the Master and then the normal one. Um, we, it's funny you, you sent this to me because literally uh, last week we got a, a warning, I guess, because we left our garage or excuse me, our garbage cans out a little longer than we were supposed to because we were up in Mount Charleston. That has no HOA, <laughs> you know, so and we, you know, we Paula called them, my wife, and, uh, you know, they apologized or whatever. So I guess we have to figure out how we're going to get the garbage cans in time so we don't get fined. But, yeah, that does rub me the wrong way as well. You know, our property's kept up very nice. It's one of the nicest ones in the neighborhood. And, you know, I, I, it, it does, it, it drives me crazy when I get a, you know, I have these agave, Steve, and sometimes they'll get this big shoot out. Like, right, right. I literally have three of them right now, and then they'll die, right? And then I have to replace them, which I do every three, two or three years, and they know that, you know, but for whatever reason, and they still are alive. And I got a fine two years ago because they said I had a dead plant, which wasn't dead yet. So I. <laughs> <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Five but, seven yeah. seven twenty six hundred is a number. It's Nova Home Loans. Dustin, we appreciate it. Uh, have a good weekend. You traveling somewhere? Uh, nope. I'm just uh, heading to uh, Mount Charleston this weekend. But uh, yeah, looking forward to it. And yeah, you know, look, the housing market's on fire, guys. If uh, looking to buy a home, give me a call. Dustin DeHart, Nova Home Loans, 577-2600. We're about 15 minutes away from getting back into the NFL, another one of our path to the draft spots. Seahawks are up on the board. They don't have the pick, but we're going to get the offseason update on Seattle and what they're going to do in the draft from Big Radio Star and KJR in Seattle, Chuck Powell. Trust Us is presented by Dustin DeHart at Nova Home Loans. Call today at 577-2600 to learn how to purchase a home with $20,000 in down payment assistance. Dial up Dustin now, 577-2600.